Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Good singing this morning, as Pastor Dave mentioned, that is one of my favorite songs because my desire is that we would think like Christians. One of the, sadly, one of the failures in our culture today and in the Christian culture is in many situations you have Christians without Christian minds. That we know the Lord, but we think like the world. And that we would have the mind of Christ in us, and we get that through the Word of God. So appreciate the message of that song. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're concluding our study of the prologue, the first 18 verses, and looking at the last section of John's prologue. It's on page 743 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs in front of you. We've been looking at this section at this Christmas season. Uh, this month. It's, it's a, these 18 verses provide the key themes that will be developed through the Gospel of John. And even in these 18 verses, you find themes that are brought forward and then tend to fade into the background and then come forward again. One of those themes is the theme of grace. And I think it's fitting for us to study at the Christmas time. Well, Matthew and Luke provide the, the details of Jesus' birth, the, really the history of the incarnation. It is John's gospel that provides the mystery of the incarnation. And we find the theological development, the theological foundation for the coming of Christ laid out here. Matthew takes us back to, to King David. Luke goes back to Adam in the genealogies. John goes back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. Before everything else, the Word was. And it's important that we understand the incarnation and the the significance of it. The God in human flesh. You know, the incarnation is one of those boundary issues that define who can legitimately be called a Christian. There there are issues that that Christians can differ on and do differ on. And, and, And those are legitimate. And there are a number of theological issues where there are disagreements. But there are also areas that if you deny them, then it places you outside the boundaries of what it means to be a Christian a follower of Jesus Christ. The incarnation is one of those boundary doctrines. And, and we, we see this in, in, in the letter that John writes. The first letter, 1 John 4 verse 3 says that anyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. They are a false teacher. They are an antichrist. And it doesn't matter how nice they are, how moral they are, how family-oriented they are, how friendly they are. It, it doesn't matter if they say they believe the Bible. If they deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, they are false prophets, false teachers. 
And, and I, I stress this because one of my concerns is, as we come to the end of the, the Christmas season, that it's easy for us to pack up our decorations, and if we're not careful, also kind of put the incarnation aside as well. We celebrate the birth of Christ at this time of year, but the, the, the story of the birth of Christ is significant, and not just at Christmas time. The second person of the Godhead coming in human flesh and blood is foundational to our salvation. As Titus 2.11 states, the, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God is Jesus Christ. God sent His Son into this world. And what I want us to see from this passage this morning is that Jesus Christ manifests the glory of God so that you can experience His life-changing grace. The emphasis in this final section of the prologue brings us back to that theme of grace. If you have your Bibles open, follow with me. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. We'll read through the verse 18 and see the conclusion of this prologue. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses." But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we look into Your Word this morning, we thank You that You have given us both the inspired Word and the incarnate Word. And we pray that we would see clearly Your grace, that it would be seen in us and displayed through us for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. These verses really are the climax of the prologue. Verses 14 through 18. The, the prologue is the first 18 verses. We've looked at that. There are, there are three key verses in this prologue. Verses 1, 14, and verse 18. Verse 1 tells us who the Word was. Verse 14 tells us what the Word became. The Word was God, the Word became flesh. God became human and tent camped among us. That's what we, we saw last week in verse 14. He dwelt among us. The idea is He tabernacled here. And in doing so, He experienced human limitations, human frailty, human sorrow, pain, suffering, the, the emotions and temptations of humanity. He was tempted in every point like we are, but he did not sin. And because of that, he can be touched with our weakness. So the Bible tells us we don't have a high priest who, who cannot be touched with the, the feelings of our weakness, our infirmities. Because he was tempted in all points like we are, but without sin. And, and what we find in this passage is that it was He moved into our neighborhood. And so that the glory of the Father could be examined. And that's really what John is laying out for us. 
And so verse 18 then provides the culmination of this passage, pulling verses 1 and 14 together and, and summing up this entire prologue. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, the unique Son, has declared Him. And we're going to see that in a few moments. In Jewish thinking, the the Son was to replicate the character of the Father. And as He would do that, He would honor the Father, but He would also show that He is honorable. And so we find that in the Son. In verse 14, we saw that he was full of grace and truth, and and truth reveals the horror of our sin. Grace is what gives us hope. And we see that Jesus Christ manifests the glory of God so that we can experience that life-changing grace. There are several things I want us to see about this in this passage this morning. First is we need to recognize the supremacy of Christ. Verse 15, John, and it's John the Baptist that's being spoken of here. The the Gospel of John bears the name of the Apostle John. But the John that is mentioned is John the Baptist. John the Apostle never names himself in the Gospel or in his letters, in his epistles. He, He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He can't get over the fact that Jesus loves me. And he lays that out. So when John is mentioned, the name John is John the Baptist. And so John is a man sent from God, verse 6 tells us, to bear witness of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And so he says, the, he cries out, the one, he's the one of whom I said, he comes after me, but he's preferred before me. He's ranked above me is what he's saying, because he was before me. Now, John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus. And we find that in in Luke's Gospel. So, Jesus comes after John. He who comes after me. He was born after John. And we we see that in in Luke chapter 1, verse 36, where the angel tells Mary of Elizabeth being with child. She's six months pregnant. It tells us in verse 36. And then in verse 56, Mary stayed there for three months and would leave then when the baby was born. And and so we we see it in that passage. And, And John will not let us stray from the realization that the one of whom he's bearing witness is the transcendent being. So he says, he comes after me. He was born after me, but he ranks before me because he was before me. And he's taking us back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is eternal. He was before me, is what he's telling us. In verse 1, it says, the Word was with God. He is distinct from the Father, but He was God, it tells us in verse 1. He's deity. And so He says He is preferred. He ranks before me because He is God. That's what verse 15 is laying out for us, that, that even before John knew who he was pointing out, he announces that the long-awaited Messiah was come. See, the incarnation is not God indwelling in humanity. It's not like it was some type of a superman that that God found a special person and indwelt them. 
He, he didn't find a suitable human and take up residence in him as is taught by the uh, Christian science, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. No, the incarnation is much more than that. It is, it is God in human flesh. God the Son, the second person of the Godhead. So we sing one of our Christmas hymns, True God of true God, light of light eternal, lo, He abhors not the virgin's womb, Son of the Father, begotten, not created. He has always been. In the beginning was the Word. So later in this chapter, in verse 29, John is going to point to Jesus as he sees Him coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he restates in verse 30, This is He of whom I said, He after me comes a man who is preferred before me because He was before me. So this theme that's being laid out here in verse 15 is now going to be picked up again in verse 30. And we're not going to be able to get away from the fact that he was in the beginning. And then in verses 31 through 34 of this first chapter, John indicates that it was at the baptism of Jesus that he recognized him as the Son of God. And, and the baptism of Christ is a tremendous point of reference for the Trinity. The Son is baptized, the Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father speaks from heaven. And so it does away with the, the false teaching of, of modalism, that, that there's only one being who takes different forms at different times. No, God in three persons. One God, three persons. And so the, the doctrine that is being brought out here and I know that's kind of heavy right after Christmas. But this is the foundation of the incarnation. The mystery of the incarnation where Luke and Matthew give us the history. Then toward the end of John chapter 3, John's disciples, John the Baptist again, come and, and they're, they're actually jealous because Jesus is getting more attention than John. And, and they come to John saying that everybody's going after him. And in, in John 3.30, John declares, He must increase, I must decrease. Folks, we need to see Jesus Christ as supreme in our life. That this is Christ's church. We want Him to receive glory. When Christ entered the world that He had created, He was unrecognized. That's what verse 10 tells us. He, the word, world did not know Him. And He was unwelcomed. That's what verse 11 tells us. He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him. But those who did receive Him were given the authority to become the children of God. That's verse 12. So what does it mean to receive Him? Well, that verse concludes by saying, those who believe in His name. To receive Christ means to believe in Him as He is revealed in His Word. As He has been made known that we come to the Father through the Son. Because He makes the Father known. And this is not by human ability. It's not by family background. It's not because you come to church. It's not by good works or religious upbringing. It's because of God. That's what verse 13 told us. 
And so one of our statements of purpose at Tri-City is we seek to exalt the triune God, the God in three persons. That it's, it's not about programs or people, it's about the personal work of Jesus Christ, to seek to glorify God in the church by Christ Jesus. So is He supreme in our lives? The second thing, though, that we see is that you experience the abundance of Christ. It says, and the... Of His fullness, we have all received grace for grace. And verses 16 and 17 are actually picking up the theme again from verse 14. The, of His fullness, we have received grace after grace, grace upon grace, grace for grace. What is grace? Well, we know of grace as unmerited favor, undeserved favor. But it's more than just undeserved. We actually deserve something else. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Justice is getting what we do deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And, and we see in God's grace that mercy, that He gives us grace when we deserve His wrath. You know, I mentioned last week that we, we tend to view grace and truth as almost opposites, that there's a, a scale, there's a spectrum. It's, it's almost like grace versus truth in a bowl game. That's not the Bible. Jesus Christ was full of both. But we struggle because, we, you know, we can say, well, there are grace people. You know, they're loving, they're caring, they're compassionate, they're forgiving. Then there are truth people. You know, they're, they're defenders of what's right, they're principled, they're firm, they're unbending. And, and yet we can warp both of those. Grace people might just want to be loved and accepted rather than actually loving others. That, that they're nice to people because they want to be loved. But they're not really interested in helping people change. They might be to tolerant or they might be cowardly. Don't want to make any waves. Truth people might be loyal to the cause, but not concerned about people. They want to enforce the rules, the consequences, but, but they don't really allow for mistakes. They can, there can be judgment, but there's not mercy. In Christ, we find those brought together perfectly. There, there is full grace and full truth. He never cuts corners, but He shows compassion. And that great compassion is a principled compassion. And it's interesting, I mentioned that, that the word truth is used about 25 times in this gospel, while grace is only used four times, and all four of them are right here in verses 14, 16, and 17. But the pattern of grace flows through the book, and we see that as how, in how Christ deals with people through this gospel. We see the rich, full, unmerited favor of God to sinners. We see Jesus as the fullness of the Father, the, the essence of those attributes. So, so when He meets with an immoral woman at the well in Samaria, you see His grace as He teaches truth. And she is excited and, and goes and tells, come see the one who's told me all about myself. The grace of God that brings salvation. The gift of His grace. Grace for grace or grace after grace. James 2.13 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. There is grace in Christ for every season of life. You know, our children need grace. When they say, as one of my grandchildren did, it's hard to obey. 
Yeah, that's hard for all of us. Our young people need grace as they seek to resist peer pressure to please God, to do right when peer pressure wants to do wrong, to be kind to people who are not kind to us. That takes grace. Teenagers need grace to be pure in a perverted culture, to say no to the desires of the flesh. Parents need grace in dealing with young children, to be patient yet firm, to, to teach principles but show compassion, to teach line upon line, precept upon precept, when you've already said it ten times, and now you have to say it ten more. To be consistent and teach that sin has consequences. Parents of teenagers need patience and grace to direct their hearts of their young people to know the mind of Christ, to know true biblical wisdom in an information age. You can Google information, but you can't Google wisdom. It takes wisdom to apply truth properly. And we need to help them see the wisdom of God as attractive when the world makes their wisdom attractive. It takes patience. Husband and wives need grace in dealing with one another in Christ-like love and respect and compassion. You know, we need grace at every stage of life. There's, there's grace that's needed for youth, and there's grace that's needed for adults in the workplace, and then there's grace that's needed for the later stages of life. When we lose a loved one, a companion. God's grace is sufficient. His mercies are new every morning. Grace upon grace. We need that grace. We need God's grace in the struggles of life. When adversity comes, when loneliness comes, that when, and it's not just an adversity, it's in abundance. Sometimes it's easier to, to stay close to God when we're struggling than when we're prospering. We need His grace at those times too. God's grace is for the good times and the difficult times. Grace for grace. At every trial, there is the abundance of God's grace. Folks, do we understand there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in all of us combined? Because where sin abounded, grace abounded more. There's more grace in God than there's sin in us. And so we need that abundance. We need to, to go to Him and pray for grace and then live out His grace. Because the third thing that we see is that you find the culmination, the climax in Christ. We, we see the, the totality coming together. For, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The, the law provided a code of to restrain sin it, it was a it provided the sacrificial system that pointed to the lamb of god that would take away the sin of the world the need of a savior the the law provided that but the law could not save if you want to turn over to romans just over a, a couple of books to romans chapter 3 we see this laid out very clearly in romans chapter 3 verse 19 it says for we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Christ Jesus came under the law to redeem those that were under the law. It goes on in verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. What does the law tell us? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 20, 
Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely, that's without any cost, by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is this telling us? That by the law, we see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humans. The law reveals our, reveals our need. The, the law shows that God is righteous and we are guilty. And there is none righteous. And there's none, no difference. We've all sinned, Jews and Gentiles. And because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, we can all be saved. That redemption that is in Christ Jesus is freely offered to all. So the covenant of the law was actually a gift from God, but it's replaced by the covenant of grace, the grace upon grace. The one who fulfills the law, who is both grace and truth. He's the fullness of those. And so verse 17 is telling us that Jesus Christ is the one who pulls that together. And it's interesting because verse 17 is the first place that Jesus Christ is named in this letter or in this gospel. He's been referred to as the Word, been mentioned there's a witness of Him, and now at the very end of the prologue, He's named. And I, I don't want to miss that because we've talked about Christ in every one of the messages, we've pointed to Him, but I want you to see that this is where He's now mentioned at the end of verse 17. The climax that there is. That John the Baptist, who really was the last of the Old Testament prophets, well, well, we read of him in the New Testament, he's under that law. He's talking about the one who is coming. And he's coming under the Old Covenant, the covenant of the law. Moses had received the law. It revealed the character of God and His holiness. But while the law could command, it couldn't give strength. It could condemn, but it couldn't heal. The law revealed sin, but it wasn't the Savior. Jesus Christ is the one who brings salvation, who brings the healing, who gives strength. He fulfilled the law. While the law reveals our sin, Christ reveals God's love. And so in Him, we have grace and truth coming together. And that God sent His Son, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Moses, to get the law, went up into the mountain to meet God. Jesus Christ came down and dwelt among us so that we could see the glory of God. We could not reach up to Him and find Him, so He took upon Him the form of a servant to seek and to save the lost. In Jesus Christ, we see a replacement of earlier grace as the Word was made flesh and the glory of God tabernacled among us. 
And that's what we see in this. This is why we find the climax, the culmination in Jesus Christ. But the fourth thing that we see is that you have an intimate relationship with God in Christ alone. And the culmination of this prologue, the final verse, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. The beginning of this verse tells us of our disadvantage. It, it, it opens with that profound disadvantage. No one has seen God at any time. In fact, the Greek text is, is very emphatic. It begins with God and it ends with not ever. It says literally, God, no one has seen, not ever. That's a problem for us. This was Job's frustration, his complaint. I don't have a mediator. There's no referee. There's no umpire to go between me and God until Christ came. For there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So we go directly to God through Christ. We don't have to go to another person and confess our sins. We have access. When you pray, you have access to the Father in Jesus Christ. And even Moses, who talked with God face to face, could not see God's face. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord told him, you can't look upon me and live. But he wanted that. Humanity's greatest need is the truth of God and the grace of God. And verse 18 pulls those together with this essential declaration. The declarations of verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, tabernacled here, so that we could see His glory. And now verse 18, no one has seen God any, at any time, but the Son has made Him known. And so it brings all of this together. And so we see the closeness through the Son. The, the statement, the only begotten Son, the, the Greek word monogenes means unique, one of a kind. Begotten, not created. It wasn't that He was the first one created. No, He was the Creator. And, and understanding, that's what this is saying. And then it goes on and says, who was in the bosom of the Father. Now that, that is a, a, a statement that talks about the closeness, the intimacy. He was with God, verse 1 says. And the intimate relationship, the, that in eternity past, God was not lonely. There was communion between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Now, now some versions have this translated at the Father's side or, or close to the Father's side. I don't think that conveys the intimacy that is stated here. The, the Greek word speaks of the chest or the bosom. You know, you can be beside somebody, but not really close to them. I mean, you, you can see people, and there have been times I've, been, I've done uh, marriage counseling, and there's a problem, and, and people are sitting next to each other on the couch, and there is an emotional barrier there. There's not a closeness. And, and what we see here is a relationship that speaks of affection, who is in the bosom of the Father. He's, he's wrapped near the Father. You know, we don't allow somebody that close unless we have a relationship with them. We, we invite them into our lives. Our, our, our Christmas celebration this past week didn't go quite as we had initially planned. 
Uh, we had planned to all get together as family on Monday, but there was sickness in the family. When you have kids, grandkids, you know how that happens. And so we, we decided, okay, we'll do, with those in our house, we'll do Christmas on Monday. We'll get together and do presents on Tuesday and kind of keep the distance as much as possible. And then do Christmas dinner on Wednesday. And, and I like that. I, you know, 12 days of Christmas, let's spread it out. Uh, goes till January 6th. Um, so we had planned this well. So we got together on Tuesday. And we were opening presents and, and everybody was over and we were having a good time. And, and one, of, one of our granddaughters was, uh, who hadn't been feeling well seemed a little better. And so she'd opened her presents, she had played with her presents and, and then she got droopy. You know, you, you could say, okay, you know, the excitement, the, the sugar high, whatever it is, is wearing off. And she came over and wanted me to pick her up. It's like, I know she's been sick. I don't really want to get it, but it's my granddaughter. And I picked her up. And, and it, it, it's that precious time as I'm holding my granddaughter in my bosom. That's the picture. The son who is in the bosom of the father. There is a closeness that none of us can fully understand. Because we never know another person as truly as the father knows the son. There, there's always, we don't even know ourselves, let alone somebody else. You know, you may be married for many, many years and you still learn things about your spouse. Now, you may know each other really well. My wife knows how I'm going to respond to things. I, but there are times we surprise each other. Understanding the uniqueness of this. It's a place of comfort. It's a place of protection, affection. So as I'm holding that granddaughter and wrapping my arms around her and, and I'm enjoying that. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm willing to take that risk. Because she's in my bosom. The son was in the bosom of the father and now he declares the father to us. You know, that's a unique relationship. You know, if you come up to me today and say you're sick, um, I'm not going to wrap my arms around you. I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you. I'll wave at you. Uh, I may not even shake hands. You know, it's a unique relationship with somebody like that. It was different for my granddaughter. The relationship with the father and the son is an intimate, personal, unique relationship. The terminology conveys love and knowledge. And so in John chapter 6, verse 46, it says, not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God, he has seen the father. Who is from God? The son. Who can say that? Who can do that? The one who was in the bosom of the Father. The clarity through the Son. He has declared Him. That in preaching, I, I, I like you to go to the passage with me so you can see what I'm saying. And, and what I'm trying to do is explain the text. We call that exegesis. That's the word that is used here. The Greek word is the word exegesis. He has exegeted the Father. We draw out of the Son who the Father is. He's made Him known. That we can understand who God is and what He expects because the Son has brought Him into focus for us. He tells us what God does. God gives life. Jesus raises Lazarus in chapter 12. God gives bread. He's the bread of life. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man shall not live by bread alone. 
In John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In John 4, He says He's the water of life. God brings water out of the rock in the wilderness. And John 8, 12 says, Jesus is the light of the world. The Word, Jesus Christ, God the Son, has broken down the, the barrier that made it impossible for humans to see God. And he's explained to him. So when, when Thomas said, well, well, show us the Father and it'll be enough. He said, have you been so long with me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. He has declared him. He's made him known to us. So how should this impact our lives? The first thing I want us to see is that we need to ask, what place does Christ have in your life? Does he have a place of supremacy? No, it's great that we're here together at the, the last of this year and to end this year fellowshipping and worshiping together. And we are encouraging you to read God's Word, to have some kind of a plan. Do, do you delight in reading the Word of God? That relationship of fellowship with the Father through the Son, do we seek to spend time with Him as He reveals Himself in His Word? Or can it sit on our shelf and we kind of put it aside? Oh, that we would make it a pattern to be in the Word. John, in his first letter, he begins by saying, that which was from the beginning. He's going back to John 1.1. In 1 John 1.1. Which we have seen, which we have, seen or, which we have heard, seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. What is he saying? The Son has made Him known to us concerning the Word of life. This life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we have declared to you that you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, we grow in Christ and Christ-likeness as we come together as a church family. That's why we need one another. That Jesus loves His bride, the church. We need to have a love for His bride as well. You know, it, it really doesn't matter how theologically informed and astute you are if you don't love Jesus and His children. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples when you love one another. Not that you can parse a Greek passage. That you've got all your theology on, on the right hooks. And you can debate it with the best of them. He says, no, that you love one another. The Pharisees and scribes had lots of knowledge. But they failed to comprehend the heart of God. They rejected the one who was full of grace and truth. And they didn't have his love for the wor world. See, a person who has no desire to be with believers and, and <clears throat> as they talk about the word of God and, and fellowship together really reveals there's a serious deficiency in their spiritual life because we need one another and we see that throughout the the bible in the new testament in in ephesians the first three chapters are the doctrine of what god is doing in the church and chapter four tells us how we apply that in the church to one another walk worthy of our calling in humility and gentleness forgiving one another are we obedient to the father's will Jesus displayed in His humble obedience the glory of the Father. And while Jesus no longer tabernacles here, we do. 
as his followers. This earthly stay is temporary. That's why we invest for eternity. What have you invested this year? Oh, we've heard testimonies of souls saved. We've seen ministry go forward. But let's not become complacent. Let's continue to strive to give him first place. Are you growing in God's grace? Is another question we need to consider. There's a never-ending supply. Grace upon grace. Grace for grace. It's available. The grace for forgiveness. The grace for growth. The grace that brings salvation. That teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Titus 2, 11 and 12 t- tells us. That we would live ho- holy, sober, righteous, godly lives in this wicked world. That takes grace. Grace upon grace. That grace ought to change us and mold us. So how are you doing? You know, look at Galatians 5, the the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or meekness, self-control. Are those things present in your life? Are you increasing in those? Examine the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Do you display the characteristics that bring the blessing of God, of of mercy, of, of meekness, of purity, of being a peacemaker? How do we demonstrate those to those around us? You know, can you see growth in your life? You look back on this year and say, well, I don't really notice that much. Well, well, what about the last three years or five years or ten years? We ought to be able to see growth. Now, I can look back and say, boy, you know, thank God that I'm not what I was. And hopefully we'll see more growth in the future. Now, if you were with us for Pastor Mike Sproul's promotional ceremony back in October. It was a wonderful time. And one of the, one of the sweet parts of that, that in his testimony and his thanking, he, he thanked his wife, Elma, and mentioned how, how they had met when they were 14 years old. That they were high school sweethearts. And they had known each other and, and just the wonderful relationship. And when we got home, I told my wife, I said, Judy, I am, I am so glad you did not know me when I was 14 years old. <laughs> you would have never dated me. You wouldn't have married me. I'm thankful that I have received grace upon grace. But we should never become complacent because we like to receive grace because it's undeserved. But let me ask you, do you show grace to others? The third thing is, do you give God's grace to others? You know, it's much easier to get grace than it is to give it because they don't deserve it. That's what grace is. Well, you don't know what they did to me. No, but I know what I did to God. I know my sin is what put Christ on that cross. And we are to forgive even as God in Christ forgave you. We like to get grace because we don't deserve it. We don't like to give grace because they don't deserve it. But we need to be those giving grace. Grace is undeserved favor for those who deserve something worse. And if you're going to grow, it's necessary. You know, there are two seas in Israel that are connected by the Jordan River. The, The Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. The water flows into both of these. But it doesn't flow out of the Sea of Galilee. And you can see in those pictures the growth around the Sea of Galilee. There's life. It waters the plains. They use it for irrigation. You look around the Dead Sea and it's barren. There there is no life. It's called the Dead Sea. Because everything flows in, but it doesn't flow out. 
And so as water evaporates, the, the minerals and all stay in it. And it's a, it's a novelty to float in it. But it's not where you want to spend much time. It's fun to look at. It's fun to float in. But as soon as you get out, they have showers to wash it off. Because if you've got any open sores, it's painful. You know, some people take in the grace of God and never give it out. They fail to display Christ's person, provision, compassion. They're, they're more like the law that condemns, but fail to display the grace and mercy of love. Don't be a Dead Sea Christian. Receiving grace, but never giving it. Because it's going to hinder your growth. And it's going to choke off life. And finally, have you received God's grace by faith alone? You know, one of the things you would never do at Christmas, I would hope, is when somebody gives you a present, you open it up and you pull out your wallet and say, what do I owe you for this? No, it's a gift. God's gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's not purchased. It's not earned. It's the gift of God. It's not of our works because we would boast. Have you received Christ as your Savior? Jesus Christ manifests the glory of God so that you can experience His life-changing grace and then give that grace to others. Let's set that as a goal in the coming year to not only receive grace upon grace, but then bestow grace on people who don't deserve it. Being kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Has Christ forgiven you? If not, we would love to be able to talk with you about that decision this morning. Let's look to the Lord.